you know, somebody said, let me write a song, a culture's songs, and I care not who writes their laws. And after singing Margaret Clarkson's song yet again with this material fresh in my mind and hopefully in our mind, I thought again that one hymn is worth hundreds of thousands of sermons. <clears throat> um, she just captures so much good theology and um, pastoral encouragement in that song. So again, I, I don't know how many of you have been familiar with it, but I hope it will uh, one day soon become one of your favorite go-to hymns. Um, all right, we didn't quite finish up in our last session. So we're talking about the uh, major characters here that we are that are introduced at the beginning of the book of Job. We talked about Job himself, the righteous sufferer. We talked about Satan, the great enemy of God and of his faithful people. And now we want to go on to talk a moment about the Lord God himself, El Shaddai, who is also Yahweh, the faithful Lord of the covenant. He is the supreme sovereign. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, even as we say, you are Yahweh, the supreme sovereign of the universe, we know that um, to say those words ought to make us fall flat on our faces, um, ought to make us take off our shoes or flip-flops because we stand on holy ground when we stand before you. We pray that there would be such a deep reverence in our hearts that that tendency to become familiar with familiar things would never extend to an irreverent or indifferent use of your name, name which is power and light and life and truth. Um, and so, Lord, as we handle these mysteries, as we try to, as I try to, explain and apply, uh, we pray that your spirit, who alone knows the deep things of God and knows us and teaches us about ourselves, would make that connection so that we might be truly transformed uh, through our encounter with you. We may or may not feel it, um, but we pray that it will happen, and maybe we'll feel it too. To have the heavens opened and to behold the glory of God, which we now in the new covenant see in the face of Jesus Christ. May he be honored and glorified in our study today. Amen. As we are introduced to the Lord God, um, one of the emphases, of course, throughout this book is that God is the righteous and holy judge of all things. In chapter 8, verse 3, we read, Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert that which is right? A kind of an echo of the language from Genesis 18.25, yet to be written, but perhaps happening more or less contemporaneously, shall not the judge of all the earth be right. That's axiomatic in the Bible's presentation of the nature of the true and living God. If you've read any uh, of the Greek classics or the Roman classics, you know uh, that the gods of the pagans, particularly those Greco-Roman gods, are just as nasty, just as capricious, just as jealous, just as rotten as human beings, but they're on steroids. So they got great power attached to all of the petty nastiness of the human race because they're gods made in the human image, the fallen human image. But from the beginning, all the way through the Bible, we are presented with a God in whose image we are made before we are fallen, and he is a God of perfect righteousness and justice 
as well as wisdom and faithfulness and truth. Again, we kind of tend to take these attributes for granted, but, but you know, the people who say all gods are more or less one either don't know anything about any gods or they have been misinformed about the God of the Bible because our God is not like any other God. He is, in this context, perfectly righteous and just. So God's almighty power, his omnipotence, is exercised in the service of his holy character, his infinite wisdom and justice. But there is an emphasis upon his absolute sovereignty. I think, uh, at least on boots on the ground level, we, we confess as Reformed people, especially the sovereignty of God, but when we think about sovereignty and causation, oftentimes we have difficulty conceptualizing the sovereignty of God as it relates to particularly human action, and that's one of the major tensions in the book of Job. So I want to spend a minute on that. Uh, this could be a whole series of messages in its own right. God is absolutely sovereign. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, including what we call secondary causes. We might say causes within creation and particularly human action and including now after the fall sinful human action. We always have to remember the creator-creature distinction I think part of the problem on this matter is that we collapse that, uh, Arminians especially. If we have some agency, then God's agency is somehow restricted. If God has absolute agency, then our agency is somehow restricted. That's not the biblical picture. God is transcendent. He's the creator and he's sovereign overall, and that includes how he has ordained that human life individually and collectively should come to expression. When we attempt to explain things like suffering by limiting the power of God, we are falling into a very profound foolishness. I remember watching part of the service at the National Cathedral, um, a memorial service after 9-11, uh, and clergymen stood up and said in public that God didn't have anything to do with that terrible event. Now, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I mean, that's bad theology, but let's say, like we often do, we feel obliged to protect God's reputation. And so we fall into a kind of a murky confusion, and I don't pretend to sort that all out at this place, but it is interesting in that passage that we read yesterday from chapter 2 of Job, if you want to just refer back there a moment, when the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, he still holds fast his integrity although you, Satan, incited me against him, Job, to destroy him without reason. And we can't take a lot of time with that verse, but notice God owns his agency in the destruction of Job's crops and family. So this isn't God permitting something to happen. This is God foreordaining and executing whatsoever comes to pass. And God doesn't feel obliged to soften that, even in the face of Satan, who would be more than willing to jump on an, a legitimate or illegitimate accusation if it was present. I really do think our confession of faith, you know, isn't it wonderful to have a confession of faith that's so useful? I mean, it's great to have a standard of doctrine, but so often when you're you're wrestling with concepts in the scripture, and then you go back to the confession and say, God, those guys really knew what they were talking about. Come on, wake up. <laughs> those guys really knew what they were talking about. <laughs> Chapter 5, section 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God 
so far manifests themselves in his providence that it extends even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by bare permission, but in such a way as has joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So the confession also says that bare permission is an inadequate formulation. How much more than things like process theology, now known as open theology, where God is basically kind of trying to keep ahead of events in his own thinking and doesn't really plan anything, but he does the best he can, sweeping up afterward. Um, and again, there have been many, many attempts to justify the ways of God to man by basically saying God isn't as gaudy as you would think he is. He's not sovereign, or he's not wise, holy, and just. God carries out his purposes always mysterious. Like we said yesterday, even when we some things come into focus and we understand them and we grasp them with certainty, they're always surrounded by a depth that we cannot plumb. So, God, in perfect wisdom and justice, is working in Job's life, bringing even calamity into his life, in such a way that God's own purposes in the end will be realized. And Satan and his agency and human agency, the Sabaeans that came in and destroyed uh, Job's uh, family, uh, those things are all subject to and yet responsible for the sinfulness of what happens in those life events. So sometimes it's more comforting to just know that God knows what he's doing than to actually understand why God is doing what he's doing, which kind of anticipates the, the end of Job. You know, In the end, Job sees God with a new clarity, but all of his individual questions still haven't been answered. All right. Another thing about this God that we know from Scripture is that he upholds a moral order in the universe. But there are historical enigmas in human history, um, exceptions to the rule uh, because of the fall and because of the way God has ordained the usefulness of sin in accomplishing his ultimate purpose. Again, I understand, particularly for you other pastors or you uh, uh, theologians, uh, you know, you can just say, well, what about, what about, what about, and I don't have time to do all of the what abouts. But just to say, again, that God is working out his purposes and his plans morally, but the moral expression where the righteous are blessed and the wicked suffer, it doesn't always happen that way. There are these exceptions. Uh, I don't have time to cite it, but I would commend to you, you at least who uh, like to pursue these things, in the collection of essays called The, uh, the Infallible Word that was published uh, by the uh, Westminster faculty about three generations ago. There's an essay in there by Cornelius Van Til called Nature and Scripture. That's an essay you ought to read every five years whether you need it or not. It is that good. It's a little heavy sledding first time through, but he wrestles with this, what I was talking about yesterday, the, the special revelation and the, and the general revelation in a historical sense. Anyway, he points out that the good, that is, believers, are generally hedged about by God, yet they must not expect 
that always and in every respect this will be the case. The evil, that is, unbelievers, will generally be rewarded with the natural consequences of their deeds. But this, too, is not always and without qualification the case. The wicked sometimes prosper. Nature only shows tendencies, and tendencies point forward. The tendency itself is meaningless without the certainty of the climax. So again, you can tie that into what we've been saying with the kids on uh, on uh, in the evening, uh, this idea that we are experiencing all of the anomalies in the here and now, but they make sense in terms of the future that is yet invisible, has not yet come to pass. So there is significant meaning to history. Uh, it's not just cyclical or random or meaningless, but the fall has fractured God's order, not only in terms of a physical curse, but even the moral universe is tweaked. And um, a book like Ecclesiastes really probes that negative side, the, the seeming meaningless and futility of human life. And yet, in the end, comes to the proper conclusion. God is wisely working out his purposes among human beings. So there's a breadth to God's wise purpose. And the more we learn about God's purpose, the more we understand the breadth of that. That's the mystery. Uh, especially when it regards the place of suffering in the divine economy. As we'll see shortly, retribution alone is an inadequate model for understanding our experience. Though affliction may serve as a wake-up call um, to the sinner, uh, he may or may not respond with genuine repentance. You know, think how often we think about our non-believing friends or family members, and maybe they get really sick, or maybe they lose a job, or maybe a relationship breaks up, and we, we hope that that circumstance will lead them to Christ. But no circumstance by itself leads to Christ but it's how God brings the gospel to bear upon their life, often through us, in the light of that circumstance. I mean, how many non-believing friends do we have that have welcomed our prayers when they were sick, and we prayed for them, and they got better, and they went on their merry way and gave no further thought to it. There was nothing sanctifying about the, uh, the experience apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And praise God, that sometimes happens in conjunction with a crisis. But it's grace that converts, not circumstance, not um, experience alone. Okay, so we can't rely solely on the retribution model. There's a further purpose in chastening and perfecting that God is doing, particularly in the lives of his own beloved people to bring us to a deeper understanding and appreciation of his power, his goodness, so that we trust him. Um, again, I didn't bring my hymnal with me, but in that last verse of Clarkson's hymn, that God is working our soul's eternal good by perfecting our trust, deepening our reliance upon this creator God. So Job, and each one of us here today as God's people, we are living in the presence of this God. And I would just remind you again that whether it's in an early version, the original version, or later, uh, the name Yahweh is attached to this book along with the name Shaddai. He is all-powerful, but he's also the God who revealed himself through Moses as the Lord of the Covenant the God of electing love, the God who preserves his people, the God who actually communes with his people. I hope I'm not confusing you with this, making us kind of be unstuck with time, but we've got an early book in Job, then we've got Moses later writing about that same earlier period when he gives us Genesis and, and Exodus, and and so we're, we're trying to kind of see it as it might have been for Job, as it 
would have been understood later with the fuller revelation of the Pentateuch. And so Job is interacting with the God of the covenant, even though God hasn't established that covenant uh, until later under the time of Moses. All right. So in this introduction, then, the author gives us an expanded view of the situation of Job's affliction. Terrible things happen to Job, and now we've got a little bit of an understanding of why by seeing the interaction between the Lord God and Satan, the accuser. And so we can move on then to think further about uh, what God is up to in the life of Job. So technically, this is now the third lecture, wherever you write it down, because it's got no place in the outline. Our theme in the book is faith growing through affliction. God himself has said that Job is blameless and upright, one who fears Yahweh, fears the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, and turns away from evil. So the question obviously is why, from Job's standpoint, again, we know more than Job at this point, and we haven't even read the book yet, but we understand part of the answer to the question, why? What is the purpose of God in this book? And I think there are two themes. I've already telegraphed them in what we've said so far. First of all, is God's own vindication of himself. I said yesterday that the accusation against Job is really an accusation against God himself. God, no one will love you, worship you, serve you, unless you prosper them. And if you take that prosperity away, there's nothing about you that would be at all desirable, at all worthy of worship. And so God is vindicating himself. He acts to overcome the slander of Satan aimed at himself as well as his servant Job. And he's going to do that by demonstrating Job's faithfulness. already said that. Turn page. <laughs> so Job is going to be sorely tested through this whole experience of affliction. And it's going to be compounded along the way by the accusations of his friends, his counselors, that really end up becoming spokesmen for Satan. They make the same accusation against Job from a little bit different angle. But in the end, Job's piety, his faithfulness, will also be vindicated before both angels and men. If we cut to the end, now I, I mentioned the bracketing uh, story. We haven't said much about the end yet, but if you look at verse 40, or chapter 42, verse 7, God says to Job's friends, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken about me what is right, as my servant Job has. And we kind of got to wrestle with that, because it seems like Job says some things that are out of line along the way. But on balance, God says, Job has spoken about me what is right, and his friends have not. So again, it kind of gives us a, a reference point to steer through a lot of the confusion and the questions that might arise in the course of the great debate, which we'll talk about later. And then God further vindicates Job by saying that Job will be the one who will intercede for his friends, will pray for them, and, uh, and God will hear Job's prayer. And so it is. It's interesting that when we come to the end of the book, there's no parting words to Satan. No, I told you so from Yahweh aimed at the accuser, but it's not necessary because the evil one has been thoroughly refuted, silenced, and vanquished through the course of the book. God overcomes all his and our enemies in the person of this great enemy. So that's one purpose of the book. The other has to do with Job as a man and as a man of faith. 
God in dealing with him is out to deepen, mature, refine, whatever we want to use to describe the growth in Job's faith and wisdom, in the fear of the Lord. God is working out a very personal, gracious purpose for Job. I mean, we'll see the question asked over and over throughout the book. Why, why, why? Chapter 3, why did I not die? Why did the knees receive me? Why light given to me? Chapter 7, why have you made me? Why have I become a burden to you? Chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 24. Why, 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 why? And part of the answer to that question is Job needs to grow. He needs to expand his understanding. So, human wisdom isn't going to get it. His friends are not going to give the understanding that Job needs. God alone is wise. God alone reveals wisdom to his people. But it has to start with that heart attitude of creating that love, that trust, that devotion that is described under the heading of the fear of the Lord. To cut it down in a short form, God's purpose for Job is his progressive sanctification and growth in grace and wisdom. And I think this is captured in chapter 42, verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So Job, at the end of the story, says, of that initial condition, it was like hearing rumors of God and believing them. Now, by the end of his experience, it's like seeing God face to face. Now, Job does encounter God directly in the whirlwind, but I think it's the way he perceives it. And, and I'm sure you who have been Christians for any length of time, you look back at your faith five years ago or ten years ago, I mean, you've learned some new stuff, but what's really amazing is that the stuff you knew then, you know now. I go back to that quotation I, I cited yesterday from Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration. The end of our exploring is to come back where we began and know it as if for the first time. Well, that's Job. Job isn't coming from being a wretched, wicked, uh, defiant, covenant breaker to now a man of faith. He's coming from a man of faith and piety to one who has come closer to the Lord God and whose experience of communion with God is now deeper. And, and so vindication and sanctification both taking place through the process of affliction and suffering. God's purpose for Job is to Help him understand more and more what it means to be anachronistically a Christian. What it means to be a believer. And that purpose extends to each one of you as God's people. We naturally lack wisdom. We desperately need wisdom. And one of God's graces is that he makes us hunger and thirst after that which we most need. Um, and so we ask, well, where, where will it be found? It'll be found in communion with God, a deeper and deeper growing communion. The goal, of course, is to fear the Lord. The means are first to seek it, to pray for it. Now here again is a thought for another day, but James says if you lack wisdom, ask from God. That sounds so easy. So then we ask, God, give me wisdom and strength. Wisdom and strength. How many times do we hear wisdom and strength? Well, how is God going to answer that prayer? It's often by taking you through the valley of affliction. And you might say, well, that wasn't what I was praying for, Lord. I just want it to come down out of heaven on a parachute and land on me and I will be so wise. We need wisdom, but it hurts to become wise. It hurts to be stretched, but it's good for us 
and it comes through testing. I would remind you of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested genuineness. There's the vindication. God is testing Job to show Satan that Job is the real deal. But it's tested genuineness so that Job will come to understand it and the God that he worships far more deeply. And one of the problems with Job's friends, as we'll see, is that they can only see one of those purposes and even inadequately analyze that particular purpose in Job's experience. And just as we were praying this morning, and I don't know why I'm sort of thinking about this message and we're praying and stuff, but it, it occurred to me again what Paul says about our momentary light affliction, not comparing with the eternal weight of glory. Imagine how crushing Job's experience was and how crushing your afflictions can be. They're light, but you don't know they're light until you come to appreciate the glory. And when Peter says there that this testing will result in praise and glory and honor, now when we say those, where do those usually get directed? Praise to God, glory to God, honor to God. But Peter is saying praise, glory, and honor to you as a God's faithful people on that day when Jesus Christ appears. We partake of his glory and honor. I don't think we think about that enough. But as God works in us, we think about ethical conformity to Jesus being made more and more into his likeness so that we think like him and feel like him and behave like him. And that's all true. But in the end, in that yet invisible future, we are going to be glorified with him in the whole person. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been crushed with the burden of affliction. Now enjoy the eternal weight of glory. Now we're not there yet. So the present suffering seems so overwhelming, so huge. But if we deepen in our faith, if we study and reflect on these things, we can begin to redress the imbalance so that that future outweighs even the bitter disappointments, the illnesses, the, the, the difficulties, the injustices that we experience here in the present. Again, the connection with what we're talking about in Hebrews 11 is really, really clear. I said yesterday that Job is a Christological book. So it is. So let's think just for a moment about Job and Jesus. God's purpose for his beloved son Jesus is exactly the same for jo as that which he had for Job. Jesus, through his life, fulfilled the patterns of the righteous sufferer, of whom Job is perhaps the foremost example and of the pattern of wisdom that is rehearsed again and again in the book of Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs 15.33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Talk about Jesus in his two states of humiliation and exaltation. And that's got to be the order. Again, Proverbs 18.12, Before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So, Jesus, and I'm not thinking about him here particularly as the sin bearer, 
we emphasize that, and we ought to emphasize that. But in his humanity, Jesus is the Son, the beloved Son, the, the second Adam. And as the second Adam, God is perfecting him through the things that he suffers. And part of what God does in the life of Jesus is to vindicate him. You know, when you come to the cross, the cross gives a verdict on all of Jesus' claims. It's kind of epitomized in Pilate's sign. Here's the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, bleeding out and dead. All of Jesus' messianic claims, the king of the Jews, bleeding out and dead. The verdict of the cross is that Jesus was a liar, a cheat, and a fraud. God won't let that verdict stand. And so he raises him from the dead. And in that, vindicates what he said at the beginning. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So like with Job, God is vindicating Jesus, his son. But at the same time, Jesus, as a human being, grows and matures throughout his life in wisdom and in understanding and in growing through affliction. So I cited Hebrews chapter 5 yesterday. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So both of those purposes that God had in Job prefigure the purposes that he had for his son. To vindicate his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh, and all that that entailed, which included rescuing a people for himself, and as the second Adam, to bring Jesus in his human nature to the fullest understanding of that growth and that maturity that for us is a growth from sin to holiness, but for Jesus, a maturing from holiness to even more holiness, wisdom to even greater wisdom and understanding. And so in Job, Jesus is present throughout this book. And we haven't come to Job's lament just yet, but I think about Jesus' words on the cross, quoted from the beginning of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I and many, many other preachers uh, go on to make the point that as Jesus is our substitute, he was judged and forsaken by God in our place and so forth. But to think about those words as the words of Job, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Job's lament. And then as you read on through the psalm, the psalmist is convincing himself that that perception that he has been abandoned and forsaken can't possibly be true because of the faithfulness of the Lord. You are he who took me from the womb. Verse 9, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God, be not far from me. There is no one to help. The psalmist, David, let's say, comes to that wonderful assurance that God will never leave him and forsake him. Job comes to that final experience. And Jesus, on the one hand, the sin bearer, but on the other hand, the righteous sufferer, in that moment when he most felt alienated and estranged from God, God turning his face away, knew that that couldn't be true because God will not forsake his faithful people. And in the darkest, darkest hour, we can know that he is our God. We don't understand all the why, but we understand the God who has pledged himself to us. And so Jesus is able to identify with us in our Job-like experiences. 
can sympathize with them. And you know well those passages in Hebrews that emphasize the identification and then the sympathy of Jesus, our great high priest. Comes up, first of all, in Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, even as he was stricken for our sins. But in Hebrews, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, the Son, likewise partook of the same. He is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Chapter 4, verse 15. But he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now when you read the New Testament, let's say alone or primarily, or you read the book of Hebrews, Job may not be the first one who pops into your mind. That's why I want us to note those things in Hebrews while Job is center stage in our attention and understand that Christ has brought to completion everything that is there in the experience of Job, except Job is a sinner, Jesus was not. But God's dealing with his son. So then what does that mean for us? Hebrews chapter 12. When you are disciplined by the Lord, don't imagine that something strange and unusual and, and unjustified is happening. He's bringing you by that same path. We would like to live pain-free lives. We'd like to never hurt, never be betrayed, never be falsely accused. It ain't going to happen. But far from saying, oh Lord, what's wrong? We can actually praise God because it's exactly right. God is vindicating us and himself, and stretching us. So what are some of the implications then? When is the session end? Now? 10.30. Okay, good. So we can finish this uh, little section here. I don't want to fall farther behind. Uh, a few implications and applications. What do we say to ourselves or others that we might have occasion to counsel? Uh, first of all, enduring in the face of affliction <clears throat> cannot be understood in terms of the experience alone. So yesterday I was talking about our experience as part of kind of general revelation. We need the Word of God to help us understand explicitly the purposes of what God is doing in our lives. We're not philosophizing about the problem of evil, but rather we are learning to trust and obey, trust and obey, trust more and obey more consistently. We don't want to be like Job's friends when we meet them next that give easy moralistic platitudes, uh, simplistic answers to the problems that are experienced by others. General revelation alone will not get the job done. Again, think of these tendencies that Dan Phil talked about. Generally, God's moral universe is evident, but there are exceptions that prove that rule, and we live by faith and not by sight. The Bible gives us answers to the questions of why, but they're not always specific. We need to look on a more foundational level. You know, somebody has used, I first encountered it in a short story by Dorothy Sayers, but I think it's popped up elsewhere, the picture of a loom. And God is weaving on this loom, but we're living on the backside of the loom, and we see all the disjunctions and the frayed ends and the tied together knots and so forth, and we try to figure out what's going on here. And... In the end, when all is revealed, and I'm not sure that even in heaven we're going to get all the answers to all of our questions, but we'll have enough. But God sort of brings us around on his side of the loom, and then we see the pattern. We begin to understand better. Well, that sort of helps us live with the limitations 
of our knowledge and our understanding. We need to remember, as Paul says, that we labor not, or we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but as against these, what was that word? Preternatural powers. These powers in heavenly places, these angelic and particularly demonic powers. So, so when you're suffering, you ought to think about what Satan is trying to do. Jesus said to Peter, he wants to sift you like wheat, and when he finishes sifting you, he wants there to be nothing left of your faith. And sadly, that sometimes happens. You've all known professing Christians who have gone through terrible, terrible trials, and the bottom line was, I'm not going to walk with this God anymore. They were sifted, and they were found not to be the real thing. So Satan is malicious. He hates God. He hates us for God's sake. And so we need to be aware and pray that the Spirit of God, more powerful because he is divine, will defeat the schemes of the devil, whether it's a seductive scheme or whether it is a, uh, an oppressive scheme that comes through affliction we need to remember again our Lord God, faithful, a keeper, a sustainer, a very present help in times of trouble. Think of the words of the psalmist, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. God is our keeper. Joseph, after his Job-like experience, understood that his brothers had meant everything that happened for evil, but God meant it for good. Now you know these verses. They swirl around at the edge of your memory. These yeah, come all crashing in on you with the afflictions that come in on you. And rather than being submerged in unbelief, to be drowned in a sea of hope because we understand. And we will understand even more completely these wonderful things. Then you come back to Romans 8.28 and suddenly it resonates. Yes, God does work all things. All pastoral friend years ago who uh, was diagnosed with leukemia and in a prayer meeting afterwards we were praying for him but he said you know Romans 8.28 tells me that everything is a blessing or a blessing in disguise and his leukemia was a blessing in disguise God works all things together for the good of his people those who are called according to his purpose, those who love him. And so we can be strong and courageous, not fear, for the Lord our God is with us and will help us. I'm just trying to figure out where I want to break here. Okay. Um, we... We can, again, this is just kind of another implication, things to, to tell ourselves, come to understand how our affliction fits into the ultimate purpose of life as we so often cite it from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So we ask in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, how is my suffering right now advancing my glorifying of God, my enjoying of Him forever. Uh, one of the most obvious things, and again, you've seen this, uh, you know, so often you go through deep waters, you have trouble, you, you're, you, you come out the other side, and you immediately encounter someone who's about to go into the same trough. And you're there with some very fresh, relevant words of help. As Paul said, to comfort others with the comfort that we have received from God. 
And we know that God will be glorified. He will be vindicated as we are vindicated. And he will be honored as we are stretched. He will always, always do what is right. Maybe I'll just end. Some of you know this fairly new song um, that expresses, again, one song worth lots and lots of sermons. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful past. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Because my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast, till our faith is turned to sight. He, when he comes at last, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. The most tempting thing that happens in affliction is the lie from Satan that God does not love you anymore. And therefore, the greatest assurance as the waters roll over us is because my Savior loves me so. Lord, we thank you for the assurances of the Scripture. They don't make the pain go away. So probably it's important that the pain not go away quickly and easily. But they do help us understand and cling so tightly to important realities. Lord, if your whole process of working with us is to turn seemingly trite platitudes into the deepest and most powerful anchors for our soul, then that alone would warrant the affliction. You've said, Holy Spirit, that no discipline, no trial, no affliction at the time is pleasant, but painful. But for those who have been trained by it, like Job was, like Jesus was, like we will be, it yields the fruit of righteousness and peace. Grant us that so that we might glorify you and enjoy you, even in the midst of our darkest days. To the glory and praise of your name. Amen.